Hey, Dunker Punks. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. I'm Emmett Wachowski Eldred, and I'm one of your hosts. While we're listening to some Dunker Punks music from Jacob Krauss, I hope you'll take a moment to think about a time when you had to seek out reconciliation with someone, or a time during which you sought to transform a conflict. How did it go? What did you try to do to move that process forward, and what did you yearn for those with whom you were undergoing that process to understand or to see in you? What did you strive to understand or to see in them? Take a moment to ponder all of that while we hear from Jacob. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, don't want to be vengeful, no. I don't want to be a soldier, don't want to be militaristic, don't want to help that cycle, I just want to be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. I just want to be me. In today's episode, we're going to hear more about the compelling vision process that is happening in the Church of the Brethren right now, as we strive to see a way forward as a faith body in the midst of deep conflict and division. This is the second episode that's about the compelling vision process. In the first episode, which was episode number 42, we heard a discussion moderated by Elizabeth Oldery Swenson. Elizabeth is a church planter and the pastor of Wildwood Gathering, which is maybe the coolest and one of the most exciting fellowships in the Church of the Brethren today. It's located in Olympia, Washington. She was joined by three other young adult leaders in the church, Jennifer Scar, who is also a pastor, Tim Heishman, who works in outdoor ministries for the Church of the Brethren, and Colin Scott, who is a member of the Church of the Brethren's Mission and Ministry Board. I definitely encourage you to take a listen to that first episode if you have a chance. It's episode number 42, and it's titled Compelling Vision. 
and you can find it at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp or by looking back in our podcast feed on whatever um, platform you use to get your podcasts. Elizabeth, Jennifer, Tim, and Colin are back for another discussion on this compelling vision process. Like before, this conversation is really insightful, it's intelligent, and deeply honest. Our guests are straightforward in naming their apprehension and skepticism with the process, and also their wariness to trust the process, um, to truly consider all voices, or to really bring the denomination closer to a point of transformation and true reconciliation. At the same time, this is a hopeful conversation. It's not just hopeful because they name their own hopes for the process, but because they remind us that even when we fail to trust and love one another fully, we can always, always trust God and bask in God's love for us and hopefully learn to emulate that love from one another. With that, I think I've said enough, and I'll let Elizabeth take it from here. So last August... I believe it was last summer, we had a conversation, the four of us um, around this compelling vision process that came out from annual conference 2017. Um, and here we are again in the spring of 2018. Um, there's been some more information shared about it and we're sort of continuing to follow up with each other and continue the conversation of what um, this process might be and how it might come about in our denomination. Um, but also looking at the ways in which young adults can help shape the future of the church for the long game and, and where we are going denominationally um, in terms of our future together and recognizing that not only um, us, but also the generation younger than us are really the ones that live into this, live into this process. And so what does that look like? And uh, how do we embrace that? How do we um, inform that? And what do we feel called and compelled to do together? So we're here. I'm Elizabeth Ullery Swenson from Olympia, Washington, and I'll just have you just say your names and where you are. And um, I'm Tim Heishman from Kieseltown, Virginia, in the Shenandoah District. I am Jennifer Scar from Trotwood, Ohio, in the Southern Ohio District. And I am Colin Scott. I'm in Harrisburg, and uh, I'm in the Southern District of Pennsylvania. Like I said, the four of us were together on a podcast last summer, and we have stayed in touch over the last several months, sort of revisiting this conversation around this compelling vision and the vision of the Church of the Brethren for the Future. So maybe let's start with where your it's a little bit of a loaded question, but where, how you're feeling about the process at this point in time, maybe briefly sort of share, like, are you feeling good about it? Are you, you know, there was some information shared um, about the leadership team and sort of bringing together this working group. And then now they're making, they're calling out and getting ready to announce compelling vision process team. And so how are we feeling about that? I feel skeptical, but I want to feel hopeful. Uh, so those are kind of two emotions that both come to the surface as I think about it. Um, one of the reasons I feel skeptical is just because uh, I'm aware of so many broken relationships in the denomination. And with the Church of the Brethren being such a family denomination in some ways, I know um, there's been statistics thrown around of how many of us are related to each other. I think it's even more painful in that we're kind of a family and we have these really, really broken relationships. So the idea that we could have a vision process over a couple of hours and come out with something that feels good when we don't have the relationship to do that necessarily makes me feel skeptical, but I'm also hopeful because I know when two or three are gathered, we have the promise that Jesus is there with us. So 
not knowing much about the process, I hope that healing, reconciliation, conflict transformation types of uh, activities are included in it um, to help us move that direction. I think I feel similarly to Tim, the word that kept coming to my mind is conflicted. I feel conflicted about it, possibly because I share Tim's skepticism that our denomination is pretty broken and we haven't made many active strides towards reconciliation in this process yet. And I am just um, a little concerned about the process moving forward without that being present or talked about up front. Listening back to our first podcast um, and here again, like this reconciliation piece is really, really a high value for us. Um, and so I wonder what, what does that look like? Because um, the word reconciliation is thrown around a lot. But what does a process of reconciliation entail? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, and how do we do it meaningfully? Because I, I think we talked about last time that conversation only seems to be going so far. So, yeah, so I, I would add, yeah, how's that meaningful? Like, how do we do it? But then also, how do we do it in a way that actually reconciles us? Well, in some ways, I, I see this as an opportunity to make a choice between conflict resolution and conflict transformation. Uh, that's where uh, scholars like John Paul Lederach have helped us make distinctions about, are we just trying to resolve this to stop the conflict and to have that kind of peace? Or are we trying to transform it, have a conflict transformation um, where we use the process in different and transformative ways? Uh, and so I would hope that we would bring in the best minds and PhDs and practitioners in peace and be a living peace church and not just hope that that more conversation can work. I think we're in a situation where we need specialists to help us. I think that's not a bad thing. I think it's a, an okay thing because conflict can be positive or negative and conflict can actually be a positive force. And so I think it's actually an opportunity and I would bring in the best minds to help make that happen. And I would say that like a lot of those minds reside within our denomination and for this process, we have to have people from the outside because it's impossible for anyone within our denominational body to be unbiased. It's just, that's categorically impossible. We can't be neutral third party if you have any sort of relationship or investment with this body. And so that we need to bring in, whether they're Mennonite or Quaker or one of their, our sibling peace churches or whether they're the really skilled people who are, um, do this from a secular perspective. And I like, I like talking about the, what you said, Tim, the difference between conflict resolution and conflict transformation. Conflict transformation is a very long and in-depth process. And so I think a lot of times we put the label conflict transformation onto conflict resolution and commingle those two as interchangeable. And they're really not because the transformation requires so much. It requires us to be transformed, right? And that's a hard thing to show up for. And that's a hard thing to be willing to experience. And it's not because it's not the conflict that's transformed. It's those of us who are in the conflict that are transformed. Again, we, we played with the hypothetical last summer. Uh, if we were in charge of the visioning process, what would we do? So here we are. Um, we're not in charge of the visioning process. Um, but I, I put forth the question, if we were to engage in conflict transformation um, or to help facilitate conflict, conflict transformation in our body, where might we begin? You know, Tim mentioned bringing in some folks from the outside, but I think there's also work that we can do, begin to do on our own too. Where do you think that should begin? In preparing for this discussion today, I, I did listen yesterday afternoon to our previous podcast and I had 
kind of asked sort of or had asked at that point, does it begin on a district level or on a congregation level? And Jen very nicely put that it has to begin on a much smaller level than that as far as an individual willingness to really wrestle with our own biases, our own perspectives, the way that we've either been hurt or maybe hurt others uh, through our own opinions and, and views. One of the problems, one of the things that I've seen in sort of these discussions that I've had with people is sort of that unwillingness currently to come to the table and to, um, and I think Tim put it that way before, just to show up. And I don't know if those are, if sort of among our own core friends or people who we are closest to, if it comes into explore or if it comes to exploring some of the voices or hearing from some of the voices that are not so connected to, that are brethren maybe at times, but not connected to the denomination and sort of the larger denomination that wouldn't have been approached about this process from, or even be kind of on the radar of the council of district executives or by the leadership team to maybe gain some unique perspectives in there. I mean, I think that we're all tapped into our own, as much as this conversation, our own pipelines of, of friends or people who we trust, who we either know we agree with or differ from, but have been willing to at least engage in conversation with. Because I think that we have to be find a place to begin talking and really find a comfort in the discomfort around these topics. And I somewhere in there lost the actual question that Liz asked, which is, I apologize, but um, I think um, it has to start at a very minimal level there as far as within ourselves and in some ways, those who we are closest with so we can begin to kind of determine how to approach this, but not doing it only on our own, but in safe spaces that way. I think you raise an interesting point, Colin, is that when the four of us are denominational political junkies, in a sense, right? Like we, <laughs> we know the church bureaucracy, we know church politics, and we admit that there is, the church is political. Uh, and it may not be political in a democratic national sense of politics, but it's certainly political within itself and our own sort of governance within our denomination. And so we, for better or worse, the four of us tend to follow that. And so that makes us a unique, you know, we're not your average church of the brethren, go to church on Sunday morning, sit in the pew and leave kind of folks. We're connected and invested in other ways. And I think what you mentioned, Colin, is like there's a lot of folks who wouldn't be on denominational leadership's radar that really ought to be a part of this process and that they may not be someone that we would even think of or certainly not that folks in leadership roles would think about because they're not, you know, they're not necessarily tapped in to district life or they may have grown up in the church, but have for a various number of reasons sort of left regular church life and would still have really great insight to this, not only the visioning, but also that sort of reconciliation piece. I wonder, for me, one of the pivotal pieces of reconciliation and conflict transformation lies in um, the naming and acknowledging of the hurts that have been, um, have you ever, I'm going to segue for a second, have you ever heard the um, New Zealand Book of Prayers version of the Lord's Prayer? It's really lovely. I encourage you to look it up, but it has this line around, forgive us for the hurts that we absorb from one another. And it's this really powerful like peace around that we reconciliation and forgiveness isn't just about saying we're sorry when we hurt someone, but that we have to do that work uh, within ourselves too, around how we have absorbed and held the hurt 
and we have to let that go. And so reconciliation has to include a process by which we can let go of the hurts that we have absorbed from one another. And I think the only way we can do that is through the naming of the ways those hurts have been inflicted. And I really don't think it's sufficient enough to just say, we've been really mean, <laughs> and then be done with it and expect it to be, you know, like, we really have to, to catalog it, we really have to say it and name it. Because without that, we don't, those hurts, those people that have been hurt, don't get to be seen. They remain invisible in the process. And I think that's one of the real horrific things about our denominational conflict is that the process by which we're hurting others is an attempt to silence, an attempt to render invisible. And we have to not just acknowledge that hurt has been absorbed and hurt has been flung, but that we have to see those who have been rendered invisible again as integral parts of the process. I wonder how that how that might happen or, or how you have seen that happen in your various contexts and settings. What you're mentioning, Liz, almost reminds me of kind of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I know that's like on an incredibly different scale and like horrendous physical violence, but there's definitely been spiritual and emotional violence that's taken place in the denomination. And, and I don't want to in any way compare those in ways that is that are inappropriate, but I think something powerful about that process was the way that it just gave victims a voice. And, and I know there's been victims on all sides and it's a whole multiplicity of sides that I, th- I, I think you're right that there, there has to be a way to tell the story of, of what's happened and not just have those in power tell the story, but have those at every level tell the story. And maybe through our stories, we find a way forward. Um, I haven't seen reconciliation happen in quite that way way aside from what Tim was mentioning in the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, I think there's a lot we could learn from that process for our denomination, like, like zoom it in for our denomination. But in terms of recon, I've seen reconciliation kind of pass that process without trying to see, re-see the invisible. In the Southern Ohio district, it's looked mostly like just trying to keep bringing people together to remind ourselves of a, of our, of a common heritage remind ourselves of a common work to try to re kind of refocus on why we came together in the first place, why we happened to be a church together. And I would, I would love to see how that could happen in my district, the storytelling that you're talking about and the, the re-seeing the invisible, like re-inviting all of us back into, into our humanity and into our dignity and seeing each experience for what it is. I know there were lots of spaces after the biggest hurt in our, in our district recently was we sold our camp. And in the wake of selling the camp, there was a lot of hurt. It was a super deep emotional issue. And people found spaces to express their hurt. But I'm not sure we ever got to like what Liz and Tim have been talking about in terms of like sitting around in a circle and saying, this is, this is what hurt me and this is how it hurt me. I don't know, I don't know what healing would look like after that. I'd say there are places where I have attempted to put voice to the hurt um, that I personally have experienced. And one of the most painful and challenging things is to have that hurt not seen, even, if, even though I'm naming it, right? I want to I create spaces where we can have these conversations, we can share these stories. And it requires us all to show up and trust that what the other person across from us is saying is inherently true. It doesn't matter how it felt to us individually. It doesn't matter what the intent was, right? That we actually can believe 
the experience of the person across from us, regardless of our own experience. And that, that tends to be one of the biggest struggles and hurdles, I think, in conflict transformation is that we, we have to stop seeing it from our own perspective, especially those people who are in places of privilege, who have a privileged perspective on the conflict. Um, we have to stop seeing it from our own lens. We have to be able to see it from the other, other perspective's lens and to trust that their lens is genuine, true, and valid inherently without qualification. Right, and to like let go of our own defenses, right? When these kinds of hurts are expressed to us, we get defensive, like, oh, well, I didn't do that to you personally, or that was not my intention, or, you know, a number of these other lines that we have on record in our heads, like this is what we have to say when someone brings hurt to us because it wasn't my fault. We kind of have to have the courage and the um, grace to let that experience be true. And like you were said, to believe it, regardless of how it makes us feel. And it's going to make us feel uncomfortable. It's going to make us feel shame. It's going to make us feel hurt again. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, right? And so she always talks about that we have to, (laughs) that we don't get to be vulnerable without feeling things, feeling our feelings. And so I think we need to like figure out how as a denomination to be vulnerable and to, to feel the shame because we deserve some, like we've really failed, like on multiple fronts, we've really failed. And I think we're too far. It's too, it's too late to bring us back together around a compelling vision because a compelling vision feels like it sweeps all of that under the rug and just says, all right, folks, let's just move on. I think with compelling transformation, we might find ourselves with a compelling vision, but I know that I don't, I'll be really honest and say that I don't trust the process. I don't trust that I have a voice in the process. I just want to call out, I love what you said, compelling transformation. I would love to call for that instead of this compelling vision. If we could just say, let's, let's work towards that. So let's make compelling transformation happen. And in a way that hopefully we could all trust that our voices are genuinely and beautifully accepted and heard. I would add beautifully sought out too, because I mean, going back to what Liz said about not trusting the process, I, th- I think as we've discussed among ourselves, it's also not understanding the process um, even as it continues to be laid out, I, I guess in some ways I have to, in full disclosure, acknowledge for those listening that I was someone who was approached to join the Compelling Vision process team. And for a number of reasons, including just trying not to spread myself too thin among responsibilities, but more so because I, I think the process that as I was able to try to wrap my arms around it, my mind around it at least, just seemed like it was trying to accomplish too much too quickly. And I think that we're getting after that as far as, are we ready for a compelling vision? And I, and I would also agree that I, I like compelling transformation, but there's a lot of underlying work that needs to be done on a lot of different levels before we seem to be ready and before, in some ways, we're ready to trust the process and trust the the goals of the process. Well, as I think about some of that preparatory work that might need to be done first, and, and I totally agree with you, Colin, 
I've been thinking a lot about what it means to love enemies. And just as a precursor to that, I don't think we've ever been able to name that we have enemies, like within the church, especially in the Church of the Brethren, because we're so small and family-based, that to, th- to admit that we might have an enemy within our own denomination would seem heretical. But I think it just happens. We have friends, we have enemies, we have acquaintances. And if you look at what it means to love an enemy in Scripture, it means to absolutely pour out your best and love for them. And so I would venture to say, I'm not sure we're ready to have a vision together until we can demonstrate that we love our enemies. And I don't know if that means mowing your enemy's lawn down the road from a congregation you disagree with every day for a year. Well, you wouldn't mow it every day, but every week for a year or washing somebody's feet randomly at annual conference. I don't know what it looks like, but that would be a point at which I would say, wow, okay, we're ready. We totally, we don't agree any more than we did, you know, two years ago, but, but there's a love among us that's pretty powerful. So I've just been thinking about enemy love and, and maybe that's a preparatory adventure to go on. <laughs> I'm thinking about what it means to love an enemy and I'm thinking about the word love and all of those different Greek words for love and sort of that agape love. And it's one of those things that I've always sort of understood as a love that's bigger than like, <laughs> a love that's bigger than tolerate. And this might be a strange segue, but my community has, we've had a number so far today, we've had two uh, Jehovah's Witness churches uh, set fire to um, one in Olympia and one just in the town right next to it in Tumwater. And I don't agree with a lot of Jehovah's Witness theology. It's just, you know, a lot of it's a mystery to me still. I'll admit that I don't know a lot about it, but it's just, we don't see things eye to eye in a lot of ways but I can still be hurt for them and with them. And a church that I was working for a couple of years ago was broken into twice. And I remember the feeling of heartbreak and it wasn't my home congregation, it was just where I worked. But I remembered this morning, the like visceral feeling of having that space hurt, having that space vandalized, having that space be damaged in some way. And the sacredness of church buildings, whether it's a theology that I agree with or not. And recognizing that my, my progressive faith community in Olympia can respond in solidarity because we have a common understanding of, of empathy, right? Like, I wonder what compelling empathy might be like for us, right? I mean, maybe we don't, like, let's, let's start the very basics. Like, I may not be able to love my enemy, but can I have empathy for them? Can I have heartbreak with them on something? And maybe can they have heartbreak with me too? Because I think a lot of times we want to rise above and, and be the bigger person. But these are still relationships. It still goes two ways, right? We still have to be able to, we can love and, and have empathy. But if it's not reciprocated, if it's not received, maybe not even reciprocated, but just received, that's a hard thing to move forward with too. I like that you named that empathy might be a step on the way to love. Because I think loving an enemy is probably a lot like forgiveness and that at least when I've forgiven people, it's been more of a process than a one and done thing. Um, and I think it would be a journey, not necessarily something we just do a, a nice random act of kindness for and consider it good. <laughs> and the random act of kindness can be where we start. It can be that sort of like grand gesture to get us going. But I think it can't, I can't stop there. So I... I appreciate 
all of our voices and where we're coming from and that we can have this dialogue and conversation. And I, I'm a big fan of West Wing and President Bartlett always says, what's next? And so I'm sort of compelled to say, okay, so we've talked about this. Uh, we've had two podcasts now talking about this. What's next? I think, for, I think me, for me, I don't know what's next for the church, um, but I continue to believe in the power of relationships when we can sit down, get to know someone. Um, I've always found that I can find something to love in, in everybody um, that I've met or had conflict with. So that gives me hope. And I also continue to have hope in God, <laughs> that God will somehow make this work or make something better work. God seems to have a knack for sticking with it, uh, with us. So that gives me hope. My hope lies there as well, that this church ultimately belongs to God, that whatever happens next, whatever comes, that the Holy Spirit is somehow working and moving, even amidst our flaws and even amidst our mistakes. And so for, for me, what's next is just continuing to follow this process continuing to be aware of how it's shaken down and hopefully what's next for us continuing to find our way, our voice of um, being a part of that process and continuing to call our denominational leadership um, towards integrity and reconciliation and as much transparency as they can manage. Kind of going along with what Jen said, as far as allowing the Holy Spirit to kind of move among us, to work around us, um, for me, I think what's next is something that I alluded to a little earlier in looking for inspiration at times in unexpected places or where we haven't explored before. I think we mentioned, you know, among those who are maybe not on the radar of district or denominational leadership, uh, who would bring differing perspectives, differing or varied sort of theology, level of spiritual background, education, I mean, but really trying to continue having these intentional conversations, not just among the smaller group, but in the various circles within which we, with which we run. I, I hope that we continue to explore those types of options and those, those items, because I think that that may be where we find, or hopefully find, something truly compelling, um, things like that you know, compelling transformation, compelling empathy, and really do the underlying work so that at some point we're ultimately ready to explore a compelling vision that inspires and, and really draws passion from. I resonate with that, Colin. And I think as we're talking about compelling transformation, I'm, I'm thinking about the transfiguration, the transfiguration, and, and also sort of that Pentecostal vision of the Holy Spirit coming down and transforming these people, just people, to be able to hear each other and to understand one another. And I wonder what, what that might look like for us to have sort of a compelling transformation, a compelling transfiguration that is spirit-led and that we allow ourselves to be led by the spirit in such a way that we don't have to own the outcome, that we don't have to own or be responsible, we, not, 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 not that we have to own the outcome, that we're not responsible for the outcome, right? That we trust the spirit so wholly, so fully, that we can welcome in that transfiguration, that transformation beyond what we expect. I think if we try and have a compelling vision of any kind, if we try and transform any conflict within the confines of what we imagine is possible as humans, it's gonna fail. 
there is not going to be a perfect process by which we come to this transformation or vision, but I hope that we can allow that spirit to lead and to trust that the spirit might not show up in the way that we think, uh, in the way we think she will, right? Like the spirit that just shows up might not be the spirit we expect. Thank you all so much for this conversation and for uh, your visions that you share and for the ways that you are compelled in your own lives. And I look forward to continuing this in future podcasts, but also just amongst us. And we look forward to bringing in more voices as well. So if those who are listening would like to share their compelling visions, their stories of transformation and transfiguration, that we might broaden this circle of conversation, um, we would welcome that. So thank you all so much. Elizabeth, thank you once again for moderating this conversation with such care and conviction. And thanks to Tim, Jennifer, and Colin for offering your time and your wisdom to contribute to the conversation as well. I am recording this audio after having attended a Love Feast service. It's Maundy Thursday. This was one of the most beautiful and most memorable Love Feasts that I've ever attended. All of the churches of the Brethren in the area came together, and we did a lot of praying and a lot of singing. More, I think, than at any love feast that I've ever been to. The food was eclectic and plentiful and delicious, and the fellowship was something to savor. And the washing of feet, I really don't know why, struck me as particularly meaningful. You know, I think that I've had a lot of things building up on my feet, and it felt really good for them to be washed by a perfect stranger who nonetheless loved me deeply. And it also felt really good to then have the chance to wash another stranger's feet who I nonetheless love deeply. When I think about the compelling vision process, one of my greatest hopes is that we do what Dunker Punks are so often called to do, that we look forward by looking back the celebration of Love Feast, Maundy Thursday, is to put into practice the things that Jesus calls us to do by following the example that he set out for us. The gathering to eat, the breaking of bread and drinking from the cup, each of these is done not just in remembrance of him, but to emulate him. One of the things of Jesus' life that we read of scripture of all those things, I believe that the most powerful one that Jesus ever did was to kneel and wash the feet of his disciples. No supernatural miracle, no act of healing, no prophetic teaching, and really I do believe this, not even dying and rising from the dead measures up, in my mind, to that simple act of radical transformation and compelling transformation. How in one moment, Jesus could overturn and upend the lines and the rules that humans have staked out to divide and classify and stratify one another. How he could so genuinely pour out and humble himself for the sake of service and love. How he could set a radical example of what it means to love and to serve and to be vulnerable and also to be so simple through it all an example not just to follow on Monday Thursday, not just to follow through the washing of feet, but in all things, enduring all things, every single moment of every single day of every single year. The brethren have made a tradition of following this example 
of the washing of the feet and of applying those principles to all things. When we look to emulate Christ as his body, I think the clearest and most compelling vision of all will come from learning how to once again humble ourselves and turn to one another in a spirit of service, love, and fellowship, and then return to a table that's big enough for everyone and to break bread together. That, to me, is how compelling transformation can happen. Now, I want to end, like I often do, with a challenge. And it's actually the challenge that Elizabeth set out during her moderation of this episode. One of the great ideals of Love Feast is that it takes place at a table that is set for everyone, that welcomes anyone who thirsts and hungers and seeks fellowship enough to join. And so Elizabeth extended an invitation to others to join in the conversation. So please join. Get in contact with us and let us know what you think about the compelling vision that the Church of the Brethren must stake out for the future. You can always get in contact with us by emailing us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. That's dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Thanks again for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a team of contributors from around the U.S. who are giving voice to their compelling vision for a Church of the Brethren centered around wholeness, community, and justice. Our audio was edited by Kevin Schatz, and our music is by Jacob Krauss. Our executive producer is Suzanne Lay, and I'm Emmett Wachowski Eldred, one of your hosts. To contact any of our hosts, producers, or contributors, or to get involved, or to make a donation, please email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. You can also find us on social media at DunkerPunksPod. And you can learn more at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp or by going to dunkerpunks.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode in a couple of weeks. As a reminder, you can catch Elizabeth's first conversation about the compelling vision process by finding episode 42 at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp or in your podcast feed. Thanks again.